Thank you, brother. Go ahead and take a seat if you haven't already. Well, good morning, church. I trust you are well by God's grace and thankful to be with God's people this morning. It's a good place to be. Take your Bibles if you have them and go to Psalm 119. If you don't, we have some spare Bibles around the room. And if you don't own a Bible, you can keep that one, all right? We would be happy to give away Bibles here at Oak Grove Bible Church. Uh, We believe that the Word of God is what transforms lives. And so we're eager to give them to those who don't own copies of God's Word. Psalm 119 is where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to be beginning in verse 57. Uh, A standard is an objective mark, if you will, an objective truth that is really non-negotiable. There's times in life where you're given a standard that seems impossible. Ever been there? Maybe a job just walks in and says, I want this done by the end of the week. And and that boss has no idea what that takes, right? And you're just like, dude, you're out of your mind. Because what this takes is months, right? And you gave me a day. And so you've got to go back to your boss and say, you know what? Um, It's not going to work. Um, An an impossible standard. He put the standard out there, but you're just like, it it ain't going to work. Um, or maybe, maybe there's some standards that are maybe less in your life with work, but you think of like track and field athletes, they're given standards. That's what they call high jumps, right? That bar they have to clear is a standard. And you and I might look at a standard and say, there is no way I'm clearing six feet. But somebody else says, Hey, I got that. And they have a standard and they have learned how to clear the standard, or maybe like me when I was uh, in, in school and in graduate school and, you know, I'm studying Hebrew and Greek and you're, you're learning from these men who have like memorized the Bible in ancient languages and they think you're going to do the same. And it's like, nope, not going to happen. That's why you write books and I learn from you, right? Uh, because there's a standard and I'm right. I want to learn, but the standard, I'm just not going to quite get there. God puts, God's word puts before us a variety of standards. Uh, The one standard that God's word puts before us that really we need to understand this morning and always is that it tells you how to be reconciled to God. It's a standard and it cannot change. Thanks brother. Uh, That standard is objective truth. We're sinners. As we heard last Sunday, there's a good God who has been gracious to us. He sent his son to die in our place that we might be reconciled with God. That's a standard. And people have tried to adjust that standard for millennia and you can't play with it, right? It's a clear, revealed truth in God's word. It's the standard for a Christian life and practices how you begin the Christian life and it cannot change. But there's also another standard in the scriptures and that's the standard for what it means to live for God. There's a standard and, and God has set the bar and he says, I want you to live in this way. And that's the standard that frankly, we just don't like talking about. We love talking about the, the standard of, of Jesus dying in our place. Like we can celebrate grace all day long, but how about be holy for I'm holy. We're like, ah, come on, seriously, you got to go there. Like that's just not as popular of a standard, if you will, for us to talk about today. But it's all over the scriptures. And we need to understand the standard, if you will, that God has established for his children. Where he's like, here's how I want you to live. And it's not because he is, as we're gonna see today, some cruel, despotic ruler. It's because he loves you and he knows what's best for you. And so he gives a standard and he says, if you live this way, your life will be good and it will be for my glory. And so he gives us a good standard. And so God sets the standard. And what I love is that God gives grace necessary for us to keep that standard. Like we can look at a variety of passages, even before we get to Psalm 119, hold your finger in Psalm 119. And you could go over to Titus chapter two. I love Titus chapter two. In Titus two, the apostle connects for us saving grace and what we call sanctifying grace. That grace that saves you from your sin is the grace that enables you to keep walking with God. Look at what he says in verse 11, Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared. That's a reference to Jesus dying in your place. The grace of God appeared in the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The grace of God appeared and it brings salvation for all people. Can I hear an amen? 
I mean, we praise God for that, right? He brings salvation for all people. But where does he go next? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So if you understand English and you maybe like grammar, which most of us don't, you could read it this way. The grace of God appears and, and you could just take out the first clause because there are just two clauses. The grace of God appears, training us to renounce, right? It, it appears for salvation, but the other one's just as important. He says it, 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 it brings you salvation, but it trains you to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Here we see that the grace that saves you is the grace that transforms you. So the grace that's vertical is always horizontal. And if you know vertical grace, right relationship with God, then you will know horizontal grace, a life lived for his glory. And anybody who claims to have vertical grace without transforming grace doesn't know God. Is that, are you following? So grace that saves is always grace that transforms. And the good news here is that grace transforms. So again, you may have thought, well, I, I get God does that thing called saving, like Jesus died for me and I, you know, Jesus saves. Oh, but now it's up to me. I'm kind of left alone. And you're not left alone because grace that saves is the grace that transforms. We can even look at another passages real quick since we're in the New Testament. Flip over to um, Galatians. Galatians chapter five. This is important just as we establish the standard God has this morning, even before we dive into Psalm 119. What does he say in verse 16? But I say, walk by the spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. He doesn't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Hope you have a good day today. Do it on your own strength. Good luck, you're gonna need it. I say, put or walk by the Spirit. The Spirit was a means of grace. Jesus said when he was on the earth, I'm gonna give my spirit. It will teach you, it will guide you, it will lead you, it will comfort you. The spirit of God is a means of grace. God gives us grace through his spirit. He says here in Galatians 5, walk by that spirit. So when you read about the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5, you don't go, oh man, I gotta be more patient today. It's up to me, I gotta do it. No, I gotta walk by the spirit of God. And then God works patience in me, right? Because I'm walking by his spirit, by his grace. It's really important, brothers and sisters, that you get that this morning. Because you may hear Psalm 119 and be like, can't do it. And I would say, you're right. You can't. That's why we have to hold on to saving grace is, saving, is sanctifying grace. We will be made more Jesus by his grace. So we're going to hold up the standard and say, all right, here's what God wants. And you might be like, that's impossible. That's why we have to run to Christ. The Christian life was not a moment in time when you ran to Christ. It is a daily running to Christ, right? It is a continual going to him and saying, Lord, I need you. I didn't need you in 1975 to get saved. I need you in 2018, February 4th, walk with God and to live for your glory. So with that being said, let's read Psalm 119, 57 to 64 again. The Lord is my portion, and I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. Father, we, we sang this morning, speak, O Lord. And so we, we now come before your word and we ask you to do just that. Would you speak? These aren't the words of men. These are the words of God. And this is how you've chosen to speak today. You've given us your word. So would your precious and living and active word speak now? And would you do your work in our hearts by your grace and for your glory and in Jesus' name, Amen. 
Psalm 119, 57 to 64, I sum up in this statement. Grace produces radical obedience. That's what we're going to just unpack this morning. Grace produces radical obedience. Let's pick this apart together. First thing we see in these first two verses is God is enough. Verses 57 and 58, we see that God is enough. The verse, the, out of the shoot, I love what he says. The Lord is my portion. It's two words in Hebrew, Yahweh and portion. The Lord is my portion. What does this mean? That was one of those words that you might, you might think, oh, I think I've heard the word portion before, like a portion of oatmeal. That's not what we're talking about, right? We're not talking about a serving of food that you might receive, like a portion size. Like you go to a restaurant because the portions are large enough for you. That's not what's going on here. When he says, God is my portion, what he is saying is God alone satisfies me. That's God is my portion. Let me explore that a little bit with you. Portion in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 14, 27. Deuteronomy 14, 27. We see the word portion used, and this is what would get us closer to how the psalmist understood the word portion. So Deuteronomy 14, if I can get there here. All right, Deuteronomy 14 and verse 27. Listen to this. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. If you remember when, when the Israelites got the promised land and, and God divided up the land amongst the tribes, each tribe got a portion. And each clan within the tribe got a portion and each family within the clan got a portion. But he said the Levites, the priestly guys, they don't get a portion. This was significant because that meant the Levites were supposed to be cared for by the rest of Israel. They were going to give to the Levites so that they could sustain life. Because in ancient Near East culture, if you didn't have a portion of land, you died. That's when you, you actually became a slave. Because you would go to somebody else and you would willfully become a slave saying, I don't have land to raise crops or to raise animals. I will become your indentured servant so that I can live. That was what a portion was. So it was a big deal. And that's where we read stories of trading birthrights and blessings. And we're like, ah, what's the big deal? Because we don't get this idea of portion. That there was a, a, if you will, a theology of portion that God laid out saying, all Israel has a portion. The Levites don't get one. Why? Because they are devoted to serving me. And they're devoted to serving me. And therefore the rest of the nation will give so that they don't have to work their land. They don't have to provide for themselves. They're devoted to the temple duties, right? So that was the idea of portion when it came to land and life. It's interesting though. We see the word portion used again in Deuteronomy 32, and it's a different context, but it's a beautiful context. Listen to this. Verse eight, when the most high gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. Here we see God saying, my people are my portion. Like I delight in them, just like somebody who's given a portion by which they live. This is your very lifeline. My portion is my people. I mean, this is a, this is a, a special word and it's, it's typically applied horizontally, but here it's actually God saying, I have such love for my people, they're my portion. This, they are who I have set my love upon. So it's interesting that when we see the word portion, I think really the best way to understand it is that which is essential. What is absolutely needed for all of life, God is my portion. So let me just step aside here for a moment and, and think about us today. We're tempted to think that if we pursue the American dream, we'll be happy. If we just put in extra hours, if we just take that promotion and sacrifice everything else in life, we'll be okay. In that moment, you can either go down that path or say, God is my portion, right? God is enough. And I'm not going to go down that road that culture would say, go down. I mean, you're dumb not to. You're going to go from five figures to six figures, six figures to seven figures. Come on. 
do it. And that may be a good move for you, but you may come back to the point and say, you know what? God is my portion. I'm okay. I don't need that because I have him. Or you might be tempted to say, my life circumstances are terrible. And you just fill in the blank. You know, we all have expectations for life, don't we? I mean, maybe you're the kind of person that grew up thinking, I want this number of children. And, and maybe God didn't give you kids, right? I mean, that happens, right? Or maybe you thought, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live my life like this. And then when I'm this old, I'll do this. And then this old, and you've kind of laid out your whole life and just God blew it up. I mean, literally, doesn't God do that? He's just like, and you can either get angry at God or say, God, you're my portion. I'm okay with you. I'm okay with that. You can change my plans because you're my portion, right? Relationships might be disintegrating in your home or in your marriage or with your children. And you can either get angry at God and say, God, you failed me. God, you're my portion. God, you are all that I need to be satisfied. You are everything to me. God, you're my portion. See, isn't that, that's, that we just kind of gloss over that. We just like skip over God is my portion. I'm not sure what that means. But whether this is the King David or Daniel, whoever you think wrote this, both of them were men of great means. I mean, they had the world at their fingertips. And they're both saying, nah, that's not what we look to. God is our portion. God is enough. It's interesting then he immediately says, when God is my portion, I'll live for you. I mean, that's where he goes, right? God, you're my portion. I promise to keep your words. I mean, that's just one of those like obvious, well duh statements in scripture. Clearly, if God is your portion, if he is what satisfies your soul, then he's going to dictate your life. And so the psalmist brings us back just in these statements over and over. You're this way and I'm going to live for you because you are all that I have. You are all that I need. Of course, I'm going to live for you. And the reality is men and women, there's a lot of us that don't really, we're not settled on God being our portion, are we? Oh, we, we come to church, we can sing about God being enough. We, can, we could maybe agree with those statements, but rubber meets the road, God is not enough. Does that make sense? And, and we have everything else that we think is enough. We're, it's God plus this. So God, if you, yeah, God, you're enough if you do this for me. So I, I've been in counseling situations before where somebody is trying to walk with God and pursue their sin. And, the, and it's a good moment when that person's actually honest enough to say this. I want God if God will let me have this. That's a good moment because you're like, well, we're clear. You, then you gotta, you've got to make up your mind because you can't have both. Most of us are too hypocritical to say that. We're not going to be that honest with ourselves. But what is it for you that you would say, God, you're enough if you give me this. If I get this plus you, oh God, you're great. If you don't give me that, I'm ticked at you. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not real happy right now because what I want, you're withholding from me. And we actually think that a good loving father, as we heard last Sunday, is withholding from us. Because we really don't believe that God is our portion. And so here, this is not just a passing statement. This is a life transforming declaration. God, you are my portion. And we, we see this throughout scripture. I mean, just, I'm going to read one more verse and then we'll keep going in the book of Psalms, Psalm 119 or Psalm 73, Psalm 73, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Here we see that this isn't situational ethics. This isn't, God, you're my portion when life is good. You're my portion for eternity, but right now I'm doing my own thing. God, when, when my strength is weak, which is right now, you are my strength and you're my portion forever. Age to age, forever you are my portion. So may we be a kind of people church that says, God, you're my portion. When everybody else is living for their own desires, we can step back and say, God, you're, you're my portion. And sometimes brothers and sisters, 
from a human perspective, God sends down the blessings of heaven and we're like, oh yes, God, you're my portion. And sometimes we sit there like Job scraping boils off our body and we say, God, you're my portion, right? It's both. It's both. You can't do it at one time and not the other. If God is your portion, then you will praise him in feast and in famine. You'll say, God is my portion. But look at what the psalmist does. He says, God, you're my portion. But then in verse 58, he turns to the theme of grace. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When, when God is a God who is your portion, right? It's only possible because he is a God who's wonderfully gracious. So the psalmist declares, God, you are this way to me. You're my portion. You, you are what satisfies. Why? Because you're a, God, you're a God of amazing grace. You're a God of abundant mercy. And so here we see the psalmist turning his attention to God and saying, I entreat, I plead with you. Show me favor. Show me mercy. It's interesting here. The word for favor is the word for face. And in the ancient Near East culture, that's when, when this book was written, the ancient Near East, um, a king would show his favor by giving you his attention. He would turn his face to you and, and then you would have his favor or his grace to speak. We see this like in the story of Esther, right? You've read that book. Now that book takes place a few hundred years after this, but it's a similar time. And we see a a woman who's a part of the king's harem. I mean, this guy has been handpicked by the queen. I mean, she's pretty impressive. The most beautiful woman in all the land. Like when God says that about you, wow, that's pretty great. And this woman doesn't go before the king like, oh yeah, hey king, how are you? What is, she? I mean, she pleads and, and fasts and says, if he doesn't raise his scepter to me, I will die, right? She, in that moment, she said, I need him to show me favor. Now we're like, that's so weird. Yeah, it was, but that's how it was back then, okay? That's just how they lived. That's how they thought. And so here when he says, God, I want to know your face, he's saying, show me your grace. Give me your grace. Turn to me and be gracious to me. This is so beautiful because God is not a distant ruler. Have you ever heard of deism? Sorry to bust your, your bubble, but the, the people that um, founded America, many of them were Christians, but many were deists. Deism. It was a religion popular 250, 300 years ago, and it said that there is a God, and it is even the God of this book, kind of, sort of. But he's a God who started off the world like a cosmic clockmaker, and he stepped back to let it wind, or unwind. That was kind of how they saw God. God was there but he was distant. He just wound it all up and then let it unwind. And, and there, therefore God was very impersonal. God was out there, but not in here, right? He was an out there God. And we today would be like, yeah, we're not deists. Okay, I'll give you that. But I think we live like deists. I think we live as though God is distant sometimes. God, you really don't care. Like you, this is, you don't really care about me. Maybe it's because your experience says God's not there. Maybe it's just because you're like, I'm kind of small, pathetic. God's out there, super awesome, sovereign overall. He doesn't really care about me. Whatever your reasons, we kind of get this idea that God is just too busy for me. God doesn't really care about me. He cares about other people, but not me. And so functionally, we're often deists. And here the psalmist runs the other direction with a joyful confidence, I plead with you, God, show me your favor. I mean, isn't this the message of scripture? God is a good father who longs to be gracious to his children. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, right? He does not delight in the death of the wicked. He is a good God. And he longs for us to run to him. I mean, just, just think with me, Psalm 53 Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 51. Listen to Psalm 51. This is the Psalm of David's repentance. But listen to how he pleads his case. Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Your steadfast love. Not, hey God, have mercy on me because I've been a good boy today. I've gone to church, I've read my Bible, I've done my Christian duty. Be good to me. No way. God, be merciful to me because of who you are. 
Because of your steadfast love, blot out my transgression, or according to your mercy, your mercy, blot out my failures, my transgressions. So you're merciful. I'm a sinner. Would you take care of that? Would you blot that out? Would you expunge my transgressions? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. God, you've got to do this. If you don't do this, I'm helpless. I mean, that's just, this is who our God is. He wants us to run to him and cry out to him and say, Lord, give me mercy. Show me favor. Not because I have any measure of worth, but because it's who you are. Isn't that liberating? Because you know, do you know why the world religions exist? People want to be right with God. They do. They want to be right with God. The problem is world religions say you can get there on your own. And every one of them says the same thing. You can get there on your own. Just do a little bit more. And then maybe there's a God, however you define him, who will show you some measure of kindness if you do enough. We don't have a God that does that, amen? He says, like, you, you, you're, not gonna, you're not gonna get there. You don't come to me based on your merit and your performance. Come to me and just cry out to me for mercy, for favor, for grace. And I will meet you. And I will give you abundant mercy. Praise God for his grace. It's interesting that in, in this text, the psalmist includes one of these statements again, with all my heart. And here we see just once again, the psalmist is driving this giant nail, if you will, into our thick heads saying it's wholehearted. It's wholehearted. It's wholehearted. He's like beating this drum over and over and over so that by the time we're done with Psalm 119, it should be through our thick skulls that you can't be a half-hearted follower of Jesus. You can't have one foot in and one foot out and say, well, I'm hoping that they, they both get me in the right direction. It doesn't work that way. And so he just once again says wholehearted. And as I was studying this week, I thought, why do we so badly want to be halfsies? Why do we want half in and half out? Why? And I think it's because we want the blessings of God while ruling ourselves. Isn't that what we want? We want all the blessings that this book talks about. We want every goodness of God without submitting to him. Because we like the thought that we're in charge. Right? We like the thought that I'm sovereign over myself. This little pathetic kingdom called Justin, I sit on a tiny little thimble-sized throne. And, and I'm really happy when I'm in charge until I fail. Right? But that's it. I want to rule. And I want God to be okay with that. But men and women, there is nothing better than when we wholeheartedly seek after God and we surrender that rulership and we say, God, I'm gonna walk with you because your way is better and you are good. So we can't have this idea that we're half in and half out. And again, I just wanna challenge you this morning. Is that you this morning? Are you here and, and, and this is your half in moment? But all week you've been half out, right? Isn't that how we often do church? God, I, I'm, I'm tipping you on Sunday morning. I'm here. Now, now be good to me when I go live like I want to live. That's, that's not Christianity, men and women. That's false religion. That's giving God a, 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 a head nod on Sundays to go live like the world. And what your life is proving is that that's really who you are. And so here, we, we've got to wrestle with God's word and say, God, maybe that's me this morning and I wanna walk with you. My plea with you is that if, 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 if these comments are pricking your heart, that you would say, I'm done running. And you can run to the God of grace and say, I need you, as opposed to I'm gonna to try to live on my own and add God to it. So this first point is crucial, that God is enough, and that cannot be separated from God being full of grace and full of mercy. So here we see that, that we've been, this idea that grace produces radical obedience, it begins with grace. It begins with the character of God and him being enough. But then we move on to our second point in the following two verses. God defines obedience for us. God defines obedience. The, the handout notes you have may say something different because I changed that point this morning. God, def I think this is clearer. 
God defines obedience. Let's read this together. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. This point about God defining obedience and the need for obedience to be radical really shouldn't, really shouldn't surprise us. If you've been around Christianity for any moment of time, you've probably heard Jesus talk in Matthew 5. I mean, what did Jesus do to the Pharisees who thought they were keeping the law? He upped the ante, right? They thought, well, I'm doing a good job. I'm not an adulterer. All right. Did you ever lust? I mean, ever, once. Guilty. You know, it's like, oh, what? I thought I was obeying this. Right? Have you ever hated somebody? Like you thought you were better than them and you just despised them? Okay, you're guilty of murder. I mean, he just raises the bar, right? He sets the standard and you're like, really? I mean, I thought I was doing good. And then Jesus just says, actually, your religious hypocrisy is proof that you need a savior, right? Because they thought they were so righteous. So radical obedience shouldn't surprise us, but it does sometimes because we kind of like our sin. So we need to walk through this carefully and slow this morning because this is the heart, if you will, of this section. The first thing we see though in verse 59, before we get even to the action of obedience is this, the hard work of thinking. Look at what he says in 59. This is one of those that should jump off the page at you. Okay, when you're reading through the Bible, certain things should jump, this should jump. When I think on my ways. This is different. He doesn't say when I think on your ways. That would be a reflection on the character of God. Like, I want to know you better. This is a statement that he's saying, I'm going to look inside me. And this is where the challenge begins for us. I'm going to look at my ways. I'm going to think deeply about my life. Here we see an intentionality of examining his own life. These are the kind of things that don't happen by accident. It's a purposeful, I'm going to think about me, not like, how our culture says, think about yourself to make yourself happy. Love yourself more. No, no, not at all. This is a, you're going to think about what's going on in your own heart so that you turn to Jesus. So let's talk about this together. One theologian said this, we're quick to intentionally examine everyone else's life, just not our own. You guilty of that this morning? I mean, isn't that our society? The spiritual gift of being a critic I mean, we like to write reviews for everything. Anybody check out reviews? I'm a big review guy. Before I buy something, I'm going to review it. I'm going to say, hey, is this worth my money? That's okay. You know what our society's turned us into? The gift of being critical. The gift of I have carte blanche privilege to just spew filth about you because you did something to me, right? Or I bought this and it broke, and so I'm just going to be a critic, and we, we think we're excused in criticism. It just magnifies the point. We're quick to examine everyone. I mean, even maybe in our own church. Are we quick to examine other people? It's like, oh, can you believe that they do? They let their kids do what? Like, oh, man, I talked to him. Yeah, he thinks that's okay with God, but I'm, he's definitely not. I mean, I am, wow, I'm appalled that he would do that. We examine one another, but frankly, we fail at examining our own hearts because we just don't want to look inside. That's why. It's so much easier to look at you, isn't it? I mean, I'm speaking for my own, I'm, I'm way happier looking at your life and being like, yeah, that guy's got a problem. I'm gonna help him. And then, so I take the spiritual high right? I'm gonna help you get better. And that's easier than actually me dealing with what's inside here. And sitting in quietness before God saying, God, help me see the sin that I'm blind to expose my heart. And that's what the psalmist is doing. I'm going to think on my ways. This is necessary because if we don't do this, we will not grow. Oh, you might have surface growth in other areas, but you're not really going to grow. I mean, think about your career. Have you, have you had to do work of evaluations? I mean, most careers have evaluations, right? Self-evaluations. You evaluate yourself. Then your boss evaluates you. Then the boss's boss evaluates you. And the whole point is grow or get fired. Like think deeply about your performance and do better. 
I mean, we get it in the secular world. We need to be evaluated because we just, we're our own, like, oh, I'm doing fine. I'm good. Until hard questions are asked, right? And probing goes a little deeper. We realize I need to grow. Well, in our Christian life, the same thing is true. We get complacent. We think we're doing all right. I mean, we're just, I'm, I'm used to my patterns. Even if they're ungodly patterns, I'm used to them. And he says, think about it. But it actually, we, let's look at a few scriptures. Like Romans, well, actually we're in Psalms. Go to Psalm 51. I'm gonna go back there. Psalm 51, verse 10. How does the psalmist address the issue of his behavior? In verse 10, he says, create in me what? A clean heart, oh God. There's, and that heart was the seat of the thinking and emotions in Hebrew thought. Not the thing that beats, okay? It was what moved you to action. Give me a new heart. Why? Because when my heart changes... What's when inside of me changes, my life changes. Jump over to Romans 12. All right, now we're going to go to the New Testament. I'm taking you to these verses because I want you to see in Scripture what God's Word says. It's not my words, it's God's words. Okay? This is another great passage, one that you may have studied in life. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or reasonable duty. Then he says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may, that by testing. So when your mind is renewed, get the connection. When your mind is renewed, excuse me, you're mature enough to discern what is the will of God. When you're not renewing your mind, guess what? You don't even know what the will of God is. You can't even see it in this book because this thing isn't renewed. So he says, renew your mind. And when you do that, you'll know the will of God, what is good, perfect, and acceptable. So maybe, maybe you are a Christian here, but you're not renewing your mind. And so when you open this book, you're like, man, I just don't see that. Well, because you're not renewing your mind, right? You're not discerning your own heart. You're not saying, God, change how I think, conform my ways to your ways. So we get back to Psalm 119 and we look at this verse 59 and he says, I think on my ways. The importance here is that your thinking will always dictate your actions. Thinking determines doing every time, every time without end. You're, you're never able to say, well, I don't know why I did that. Okay. Well, maybe you need help to figure out why you did, but it was something that started up here, right? Something in your mind thought a certain way. And it's what led you down a certain path of actions. The psalmist gets it. And we know that he's not thinking about his good deeds. You know how? Look at the very next line. When I think on my ways, I turn to your ways. So when I think about how I'm failing, how I'm messing up, I turn and I follow you. Are you tracking here? So that's the point. I think on how I live and I turn to you. And folks, we've got to do this because our world is spewing filth at us faster than we can process. I mean, if you're on social media here today, you know I'm a social media guy. The garbage blows my mind. The garbage from Christians blows my mind. The things that we think are truth, I'm like, huh? What? You're quoting who? Like, there's a God, and you know he wrote a book. And that disagrees with everything you just said. Right? But it's just coming at us. And we don't even have the ability to know what's right and wrong. Because we're not thinking about our ways and conforming them to Scripture and saying, God, would you you shape my mind, renew it so that I'll, I'll do what is right. So verse 59 is key. We must be thinkers in an age of anti-intellectualism. We've got to be thinkers. We don't just go with, ah, you know, if it's good for you, that's fine. No, no, we are, we're thinkers. And when science says this is what truth is, does it agree with this book? I don't mean necessarily, I mean, last week we talked about creation science, but you could even get into medical science. Psychology, science, a whole list of science, parenting, science. What about this book? What does it say? Let's go there. We need to think about our own actions and then turn to the Lord. Now, verse 60, he goes from thinking to doing. This is the connection. When I think, I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. We're going to kind of park here for a while and just hover, okay? Because I think there's a lot here for us. 
Before I even dive into verse 60, I want to step back and do what I call an analysis of obedience. An analysis of obedience, okay? That's a big loaded mouthful, but bear with me. The reason we need to do an analysis of obedience is our culture has redefined obedience. We've changed what obedience looks like to things like compliance. If I'm compliant, I'm obedient. No, you're not. Compliance is not obedience. Rebellion can comply, right? Are you, are you with me? So I could even go along with what I'm told to do while I hate you. It's kind of how we operate in a work environment often. I disagree with you. I think you're an idiot. I don't think happy thoughts about you, but I'm going to obey you. No, you're not obeying. You're complying. That's not biblical obedience. Now, in certain contexts, compliance is okay. But when we're talking about the word of God and living for God, compliance is not okay. Another area that we've abused obedience is in the realm of parenting. Parents, listen up. I'm dead serious and I'm gonna step on your toes. When you count to three, you're teaching your children to disobey. You're teaching them that you don't need to obey when I say obey. You're teaching them that you know what? You can wait three, four, five, it's all good. And actually what you're teaching them is when mom gets angry, I obey. Right? So now you're teaching your kids, don't obey because I said so, obey because I got angry. Are you tracking? We're not teaching obedience, as scripture says. We're just saying, hey, when I get ticked, you listen to me. And we're teaching our children a, a non-scriptural view of obedience that moment. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, you got it. You just, yeah, I just, I just did that. Right? I just went there. Because we do it all the time, don't we? We repeat our as parents. We threaten our kids. If you do that one more time, I'm gonna. Instead of, son, you disobeyed God the first time. And so I'm gonna deal with your sin because that's what God does, right? Instead of that, we wait until the hundredth time. And by that point, we're ready to throw them and something else through a wall, <laughs> right? And then we, we wonder why our parenting is not working. Well, it may start with, you don't understand obedience from God's perspective. Right? So obedience, how culture defines it, is really messed up. And scripture is going to give us a definition of obedience that's really going to get in our kitchen. I mean, listen to this. Procrastination is not obedience. It's not obedience. To delay is not obedience. To think I'll get to it, it's not obedience. That's like when I tell my kid, hey, clean your room, and he does it in 10 days. He didn't obey. I don't say, hey, bud, thanks for obeying daddy a week and a half late. Right? I'm a no, son, you disobeyed me. I said, clean your room. That was like a, like a present tense thing. Not like, a, not like next month. But we, we do that in our own lives. I mean, I'll obey when I want to. When, when I feel like it. So we procrastinate in our obedience. You know, praying about it is not obedience. We can over-spiritualize things. Oh, I'm praying about it. Um, you know what? When God says it, just do it. You don't need to pray like, God, should I cheat on my taxes? I mean, the government's kind of in my business, and I don't think that's biblical. Um, read your Bible. Obey God. Submit to government, government authorities. Right? You don't pray about those things. You just obey. And there's times you're going to be like, God, I don't. Ooh. Really? Okay. I'm going to trust you. Isn't that the walk of faith? He didn't, he didn't check. He didn't get, hey, do you agree with me? God's not waiting for some subjective feeling you get. I love Christians who say, well, I'm, I'm not at peace about it yet. Well, God spoke. doesn't matter what you are at peace with. God spoke. Now, there are times, maybe in a subjective, we don't know what we're going to do. You might pray for God to give you a rested calm. That's different. But when God reveals things in his word and you want a peace about it, you just obey. We don't over-spiritualize obedience. And then the other one, rationalizing is not obedience. Rationalization, the wisdom of this world. So I do premarital counseling. I'll meet with couples. And, you know, it, you have a couple who is, is struggling with, with sexual purity. All right, now they, they love God and they want to walk with God. But they come to the conclusion that, well, we can have sex together because we're going to get married. Right? I mean, we're faithful to each other. We love each other. We're getting married in a month. You rationalized, right? 
to get your way. And you say, well, God's word says this. Now, I'm not, God, God gives grace, all right? So I'm not talking about past sins. You're like, Pastor Justin, I think, you know, I'm guilty of that before I was married. Uh, God forgives, okay? Run to, run to the cross for forgiveness. I'm talking about how we rationalize obedience. And we say like, uh, I want to get my way. So instead of obeying this book, I'm going to twist it to get my way. I'm going to use logic to get God to agree with me. So I think while I run from this book, that is not obedience. When scripture says, this is what God calls us to do. Like this is the will of God, your sanctification. Guess what God wants you to do? Be sanctified and obey what comes next. Even if you have a hard time with it, because at the end of the day, we all have a hard time with obedience in different ways. Your sin may be different than my sin. doesn't matter. At the end of the day, I have a hard time obeying some of God's instructions and so do you. And we don't get to procrastinate, pray about it or rationalize it when God says obey. We need to obey. So the analysis of obedience, just know that how we define it culturally is, is not good. All right, that was why the last five minutes mattered, okay? Now let's move on. What we're gonna call here today is radical obedience is biblical obedience. Radical obedience is biblical obedience. And I use the word radical obedience because we've so abused the idea of obeying God that I think if I just said obey God, we'd, we'd lose it. So I want to think in radical terms. Radical obedience is biblical obedience. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. We are too often in haste to sin. He lived a long time ago, so forgive some of the old words. We are often in haste to sin. Oh, that we may be in a greater hurry to obey. To delay in sin is to increase in sin. To be slow to keep the commands is really to break them. Here we see David says, I hasten and do not delay. I, your Bible translation may be different than mine. I hurried without any hesitation to keep, to obey. We see here, I think, two simple principles. When God speaks, obey immediately. Immediately. There might be times where God brings you under such conviction that you need to go throw out a whole bunch of stuff. I was discipling a young guy one time you know, and he just listened to garbage. And he, and I knew it. So I'm just like, we're just going to wait for God to work in this, right? So one day he comes to me and he's just like, did you know that all this stuff is terrible? I said, yeah, yeah, I did. And he said, I just, God convicted me. And he said, so I just, I didn't even want to give it away because somebody else is going to be listening to garbage. So I just threw thousands of dollars of music away. Immediate, Right? That's what we should do. When we come under conviction by God reading the book or we're living in sin and God convicts, it's like, oh man, I don't know. Just obey God. I actually think that the sad reality, if we don't obey immediately and we begin to rationalize and question, we won't obey at all. If you, if you allow your mind to go five seconds down that road of rationalization, you will convince yourself that you're okay. In that moment of conviction, when you are in the word or prayer or whatever, and God convicts you over legitimate sin in your life, I'm going to do what it takes, God. Now, some sins are going to be a process. I get that. Other sins can be immediate. I mean, it can be like you're looking, you're looking at pornography on your phone. Get rid of your phone. I'm just honestly, right? You're enslaved to sin on a device. Well, Jesus said, chop your arm off. So maybe just throw it away and get a dumb phone. Seriously, right? I mean, just, God, if you're convicting me of sin, I'm reading romance garbage. Throw it away. Because it's polluting my mind and giving me a false view of love and a false view of reality. Throw it away. Because it's garbage. And God's, and this is, again, I'm not saying to go do that. I'm saying when God convicts you, do it. So don't just go home and be like, oh, I got to do something today. That's not the point. The point is when God does his work, right? When God works, you say, God, I want to follow you. I want to submit to you. And in this room with this many bodies, we would all do well to heed this because there's, there is sin in our lives. There are things we're blind to and the word of God and the body of Christ and prayer are going to expose it. When God does that, know the joy of just submitting to him and saying, God, I'm done running. I'm done hiding. 
I want you to have it and I'm done. So it's immediate. I think we see that in this text. We also see that when God speaks, we obey completely. It is all the way. It again, it can't be half-hearted. It's immediate, but it's entirely. So what's that going to look like for us? When we read this verse, I do not delay to keep. That idea of keeping is everything. It's in its completion. Remember, you can't have one foot in, one foot out. We can't play games with God. Like, God, I'm going to, okay, God, you're convicting me, so I'm going to start bartering with God. You ever bartered with God? You know, okay, God, um, I'm convicted over what I'm watching. I'm going to cut out all the real bad stuff. I'm going to leave these things because I really like this. And I know a lot of Christians who do this too. Isn't that how we excuse sin? I know a lot of people that do this. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are going to hell too. I mean, there's a lot of people that come to church that don't know Jesus. We don't just have excuses because, well, all my Christian friends do it. Or this is acceptable in our culture. You know, no, God, God, you're clear. And I'm going to stick with you. Remember two weeks ago, we are people who side with God. We side with God. When, when we're in this book and God's working in our hearts, we side with him. So we obey completely and immediately. But remember how he started. He started with, God, you're my portion. God, show me grace. So this isn't some legalistic performance trap we're falling into. This is a, God, you are enough. And God, you give sufficient grace for everything. I'm going to live for you. Do you see how important that is? Because maybe you grew up in a, in a sect of Christianity that was big on performance. And so when you hear obedience talk, you're like, hairs in the back of your neck start to raise. And you're like, oh, I don't want to be a legalist. Legalism is preaching that says you can earn God's favor by your performance. That's not this. We're not talking about earning grace. We're saying you have been given grace and now you live for God because you love God, right? Just like I love my wife and so I don't tickle her feet. <laughs> That's not funny in my house. You laugh. It's not a joke. Some of you women out there are like, amen, preach it. All right? Like she gets so angry that she's like, I'm going to kick you. And, and it's not a, it's not a volitional action. It's a, it's a knee jerk. Like she is going to kick me and she doesn't even care where it goes. She's going to fly off and kick something because you don't touch the feet. All right. That's what I'm talking about. You have a love for God and then you live for him, right? It's like, God, I want to do what you want me to do because I love you because you've given me grace. So grace produces radical obedience. And then very quickly, I want to show you the, the end of this passage because it's really significant. Here we see that obedience is not circumstantial. He's going to take us down a few paths, if you will, of life and show that obeying God is not because of circumstances you're in. All right. So just let me work through this with you quickly because we need this for today. He's already talked to us about immediate, radical, complete obedience. Look at verse 61. Right after obedience, he says this. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. Now that might be one of those verses that you're like, why is that there? That doesn't seem to fit. I mean, the theme, the flow, what's going on? I think what he's showing us here is that radical obedience is going to produce suffering. When I really live for God in a radical way, I'll suffer. You know why? Because casual religion fits in. Nominal religion is no problem for anybody. I mean, isn't that our society? Nominal religion, we're all okay with religion. We're not okay with this exclusivity of Jesus stuff. We're not okay if you actually live like you mean it. It's like, why are you so weird? You don't do what? Hey, everybody, he's never seen this. <laughs> right? Because your faith actually has changed you. And he says, well, when I, when I, when I radically obey God, there's going to be suffering connected to my life for two reasons. Number one, radical obedience condemns simply by lifestyle. I mean, you just, you live for God in a world that doesn't, and people are going to be like, so what's wrong with you? So, um, where I used to live, great neighbors. And uh, one of them, 
Um, great guy, great neighbor. Um, when I came around, he, I, didn't, I never talked to him about swearing, ever. In my, in my theology, believer, unbelievers are going to swear. They don't know God. So I don't tell them, please don't swear. I expect you to swear. And if Jesus changes your heart, he's going to clean up your mouth. So I, I just let him talk. Well, he notices after more than maybe two conversations, this guy don't, don't swear. So then he starts trying to clean up his mouth around me. And then he started apologizing, right? I mean, brothers and sisters, I never talked to him about his language. You ever had that happen? People just notice. You don't, what, what, wait, you don't, what's wrong with you? Oh, I feel guilty now because, because I don't, you use words that I don't and vice versa and, and there's an immediate guilt, right? Because your life condemns. And you could apply that to entertainment choices. You could apply that to go and drinking with the buddies. You could apply that to a whole bunch of stuff where you just go, I don't, I don't do that. I love you, but I don't do that. I can't go there because I know what you're going to be doing. And, and then it gets to where you're not invited to parties anymore. You're the odd guy out in the office. You're the odd girl out in the office because, yeah, you just don't fit. When you live for God in a way that demonstrates radical obedience, your lifestyle will condemn you. But then... Radical obedience, I think, authenticates the exclusivity of Jesus. When you radically obey God, you prove that Jesus does something. That's, that, ooh, that's offensive. Because there's a lot of religious people that live however they want. But then you show up, and your life is so radically different. And they begin to think, man, your faith is, it controls you. There's something unique about you. And then the exclusivity of Jesus shines through, right? that you love a savior who died for you. And so you don't live that way anymore because of Christ. So here the psalmist goes from obedience to suffering because when you obey God, you will suffer. Now it may just be ostracism. It may be awkwardness. You ever been awkward in a conversation? Just because you don't do what they do? You're just like, I'm, clear, I'm clearly not, I just need to leave, right? because I don't fit in. And it might be just straight up persecution because I'm fed up with you and you're just walking with God. You're just loving Jesus and it just condemns people. So radical obedience produces suffering. That's the first circumstance. And what I love about the psalmist is what does he say? I don't forget your law. Bring on the suffering. I'm going to follow you. He doesn't say, hey, when I'm suffering, I'm going to turn from you. And I suffer, I'm going to turn to you. Number two, the circumstances that we see here at midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. Here we see radical obedience produces praise. He just worships God. When you live for God, you, you worship God. It's not a feeling. You know, the worship's not a feeling. It's a response to truth. So you hear truth, you read truth and your heart response is God is awesome. I love God. I want to worship God. That's, that's worship. So, and it's, and actually in the scriptures, as we already read in Romans 12 and other passages, one of the clearest marks of true worship, you ready for it? It's obedience. Do you want to show that God is worthy of your praise? You know, the word worship comes from worth. That God is worthy. You live for him. It's not coming here in church and singing. It's not Christian radio. It's I live for him. I live for him. My life is a act of worship. Oh, and guess what? That means that there are times in the middle of the night, I'm praising God. This isn't some monkish ritual, wake up at 3 a.m. and praise. This is just a reality of at all times of the day, I worship. I love him because he is who I live for. He is a good and righteous God. He is my portion and I praise him. Verse 63, the third circumstance that we see here is that radical obedience produces love. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. He's talked about evil men in this passage who persecute him. Here he turns his attention to those who fear God. And he says, I because I obey you, because I love you, I love all who fear you. Interestingly here, he uses the idea of fearing God, which is, as we've mentioned before, is recognizing who God is and that God is right. 
So I live in the awareness that God is God alone. And if I don't walk with him, there is suffering for my choices. There's pain and agony for my sin. So I fear God. And the psalmist says, I love all who fear you. It's interesting though, that he backs it up with a proof. Look at the second half of the verse. Who fear you of those who keep your precepts. How do you know somebody loves God? They walk with God. So this isn't just a carte blanche. Everybody who says they're a Christian, oh yeah, we embrace them. Now we do love all people. He's talking about the love of the brothers. He says, it's those who fear you because they walk with you and everybody can see it. So today, this, this kind of principle has been horribly abused to say that it, anybody who claims the name of Jesus, we love them. There are false teachers in the world. We don't embrace them. We proclaim them as false teachers, right? Or I'm going to name a few, okay? Not because I like naming people, but because we need to know practically what this looks like. All right, when, when, you, when you see the false gospel of the Joel Osteens of the world, you don't extend the arm of brotherly affection. You say you need to repent and be saved. You tracking? Now, some of you are like, wow, why would you do that? Because we are in a society that doesn't. We, we just want to love everybody. And when I say love everybody, I'm, I'm all with you. I love everybody. Jesus loves everybody. He died for everybody. But this is a love of the brothers in Christ. And when there are people who spew false doctrine, like T.D. Jakes, we hold the scripture and we say, we will not go down that path. And we will, we will lovingly preach the gospel to you, right? And we could go on for hours with the litany of false teachers. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's saying for those who fear you and live for you, according to this book, I love them. And my challenge to you this morning is, do you have that kind of compassion for followers of Jesus? I'm brokenhearted by how often in the church we love people who have political agreement with us more than we love people who love Jesus with us. Isn't that sad? You like my politics, brother. Man, I love you. We have the same bumper sticker. We must be friends. God forbid. That is not our unity. It's not who you voted for. It's not any of those foolish things. It's Jesus and it's living for him. And that's what makes this body called the church amazing, isn't it? We're not a social club that comes together over some like or dislike. We gather with one reason. We love Jesus and therefore we love one another. And outside of Jesus, we don't really even like each other maybe. (laughs) But because of Jesus, we love one another. That's the beauty of the gospel. So the psalmist proclaims, I am a companion. I love all who fear you and keep your precepts. What a beautiful thing. And may God do that more here. And then he finishes with this. Radical obedience produces genuine gratitude. He has the earth. This is the the world, the planet. Oh Lord is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. He goes from God is my portion to I'm going to live for you to I'm going to suffer to I see you everywhere. That's what he says here. I see the abundant goodness of God all around me. And again, I got to go back to my comments before we are a society of critics. We don't praise well. We notice faults well. And here he says, I choose to rejoice in all settings. I choose to give glory and give you praise and see your beauty. Even as Pastor Ernie preached last week, Genesis 1 and 2, Romans 1, Psalm 19, the, 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 the planet produces praise. We look at it and we say, God, your goodness is everywhere. Your grace is everywhere. And we worship you. And so here, we see that a heart that is obediently walking with God is able to praise him in all ways, in all circumstances, right? You don't need God to just bless you how you want to be blessed to praise him. You can simply open your door and say, God, you are great. The earth is full of your steadfast love. All creation testifies to your your faithfulness and your goodness and your mercy. And then he just, it's like this, he can't help himself. Would you teach me more about you? 
I mean, look at that's what he finishes. Teach me more. I want to know you more. I mean, you're like, good grief. You're writing the Bible. <laughs> and he's, he's like, I want to know you. I, I, I'm living for you. You're my portion. I love you. I'm obeying you. I want to know you more. Isn't that good? And so for us as a church to say, God, maybe we feel like we're, we're baby Christians. I want to know you more. And maybe you're like, I think I'm pretty mature in my walk. Not in a proud sense, but I think God's given me that over the years. And you would say the same thing. I want to know you more. I want to know you more. Teach me, oh God, teach me. So brothers and sisters, God's word provides us a standard, does it not? And maybe this morning you're like, wow, that standard is high. And it is a high standard because we have a holy God. But that God, it meets us with abundant grace. And we cry to him and say, God, be gracious to me according to the promises of this book. Meet me where I met and help me to live for you. Let it be so. Let's pray. Father, may we be a church that because of your grace lives with radical obedience to this book. That is what you long for here. You long for a church that lives for the glory of God by obeying the word of God. Would you help us to do that? And in Christ's name, amen.